In a new age world filled with delusions and wish fulfillment by morons in need of attention, renowned experiencers of high strangeness and podcasters Jeffrey Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney received invitations to a tropical paradise getaway called Paratopia. Little did they know, it was the same type of new age spiritual retreat they've been avoiding all their lives. Oh, don't be shy. Guess what the atmosphere of Uranus is made of? Swamp gas. Come on, you can shake it. Yeah. Hudson Valley has more sightings of black triangle than a 70s boar. Anything goes at Paratopia. <laughs> and welcome. You're listening to Jeff and Jeremy's Paratopia on 105.3 UPRN, New Orleans. Unless you're listening to 105.3 UPRN, New Orleans. In which case, you're not hearing this show at all. So why do we have to keep saying this? Why do we have to do it week in and week out? Plug a radio station that we're not even on. Somebody ask Joe Montaldo. Please welcome Paratopia, our very special guest, the author of Interdimensional Universe, the author of uh, many more books, but this is his latest, Phil Imbrogno. Thank you, thank you, thank you for coming on the show. Ah, it's my pleasure. Um, there's so much in this book that we could do. <laughs> uh, it, it's great because you have all of these um, sort of classic cases, but you've added your own bonus material uh, from your own files and from uh, Alan Hynek's files, which, uh, files, which you've adopted. Uh, you, I know you worked closely with him, and he left you some files. Um, so we could do all that like specific individual stuff, but really what I, I would love to do is tell a story, Phil. I'd like to tell, tell a story. story. <laughs> And the story I want to tell starts with you inventing a way to monitor the Earth uh, by stealing satellite feeds. And you actually give uh, instruction in your book on how to do this for people. Yeah. Uh, tell us, how, t- give us the setup of this. Yeah, well, back in 1992, um, I realized that there was quite a, um, quite a bit of satellite transmissions to the Earth. And um, and I figured, you know, come on, you know, these things are imaging the Earth from as far as twenty five thousand miles in space. Now, this was a time when there was really not much of an internet. There wasn't um, really much of satellite reception in anything. Of course, now today it's a different story. So I figured, you know, you got all these transmissions coming from space. I mean, wouldn't it be interesting to intercept them and decode them and make, get pictures of the Earth and who knows what might be there? So I, I got a receiver and, you know, I, I designed a system and started picking up the satellite transmissions. And you pick them up in the, uh, the VHF band um, uh, about 137 megahertz, and then you can pick them up at uh, at uh, about 2 gigahertz or so. But the thing is, is that, you know, they're tones. They're coded. 
So you have to uh, get a program and a demodulator to identify the tones with black and white images or ones and zeros. So the tones actually represent ones and zeros. And um, so you get the demodulator and it turns the tones into computer codes and the program decodes it and you get a picture of the earth from space. And you know, I, I was receiving hundreds and hundreds of pictures from polar orbiting satellites and satellites in geosynchronous orbit. Um, most of them were scientific satellites, but also I got pictures from military satellites also, which showed resolution right up down to, you know, cars going on the, uh, the highways. Mm-hmm. And um, I figured, you know, one day uh, I'm, I'm looking at these things, and, and there's an image under the satellite, a triangular-shaped object. I'm saying, what the heck is that, you know? I figured it was some type of uh, missing data, missing flaw, or something like that. And then, you know, a couple hundred images later, I get another one. And then, you know, I'm saying, you know, this is kind of strange. Then I got a picture of a disk outside the Earth a dark disk in infrared. And then I got another disk with layers around it. It looks like portals or windows. And these were taken by the GOES-8 satellite. And then I got another image of from a NOAA-12 satellite, which is a polar orbiter, which orbits at pretty low altitude. It was passing over an object, a cylindrical-shaped object, which had markings on it. And... Uh, obviously metallic looking with bands on it with marking on it and the thing is is that later on you know like a you know a stupid person I, I sent these pictures to NOAA the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration the government you know weather service and keeping track of the satellites and they had no idea they had these images on film and uh, on image in, in their file. So they, they took them out and they said, uh, you yeah, know, we don't know what they are. We call them artifacts. And if there's anything in the images like that, the computer automatically rejects it because we, we don't use it for weather forecasting. And they said, well, they're not interested. Like well, call again and... Uh, Obviously, they're analyzing the pictures, and they're trying to uh, tell me that the images are of the moon. And I'm saying, you know, this is an infrared photograph. Look at the background space. This is a disk. And look at the background space. And uh, it's, it's, it's clear because it, it's infrared. There's no heat. But look at this object. It's glowing black, which means it's very, very hot. I said, you know, how could that be the moon? The moon is not an infrared source. Mm-hmm. So I get a letter from Noah and uh, from a person who identifies himself as the director of anomaly analysis. Now, I'm saying to myself, well, if they didn't care about these anomalies, why do they have a whole office that dedicates to studying these things that are picked up on satellite? And um, so then I get another long letter from a NOAA scientist who's saying, you know, it wasn't the moon and that NOAA has been picking up uh, unidentified objects uh, with their satellites since they put them in orbit and that they're still picking them up today. Now, 
there was a lot of going back and forth and a lot of calls I received from uh, various various individuals from NOAA. And um, and the, the bottom line is, is that shortly after that, that I made those photographs public, NOAA changed the decoding on their satellites. So every once in a while, you would see a picture of the Earth, and then all of a sudden, the next frame would say, you know, blocked or channeled out or go to decoding number so-and-so-and-so-and-so, which you don't know what it is. It's their own code. And they started blocking out pictures. And they didn't start doing that until I, um, I, I made these pictures public. But anyway, 1992, because of this new technique of receiving satellites, I wrote a paper for a very respectable geological magazine at the time called Earth. And they published the paper, and it went over really big. However, the United States government didn't care for it too much. But there was nothing they can do about it, because theoretically, the, the satellites that I was tapping into officially were used for scientific purposes, which means that um, it's, it's their public domain. But the thing is, is that, you know, you've got to know how to access these things. Nowadays, you see, the, the coding on the satellites has changed considerably, even though you can still pick them up and still decode them. However, you know, you have to be careful because they're scrutinizing all the images now. And uh, much of this, these satellite images now you can pick up on the Internet, but, of course, they're edited, and there's the only images that, are available on the internet are the ones that you know the government in in this particular organization wants you to have mm -hmm. so you know they have been picking up ufos around the earth for a long time on these satellites uh okay and so what you're seeing is these objects are in uh the infrared spectrum right well you know they're 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 prominent in the infrared spectrum. The thing is, is that the images come in one after another. So it, the object is there in one frame, and then it moved in another frame, and some, then it's gone, which means that it's moving. But in the infrared, you see, what you can do with the computer is that you could colorize these images and give them colors association for how hot they are. And the center towards the center of the object is very hot, and as it goes to the edges, it starts to get cooler, as it should be. And um, whatever it is, it's, um, it, it's giving off quite a bit of energy, which is in the form of, you know, heat or microwaves or, um, you know, um, red visible light, but mostly I would say infrared and probably some microwaves, but they're very hot objects. Mm -hmm. So in my non-scientific mind, I see that these are visible, in, uh, you know, in the infrared, and I th immediately think, oh, well, gee, doesn't ghost hunters look for ghosts in the infrared? Uh, is that a link that I should not be making because... I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Infrared just means heat. It's getting off energy and heat. You know, a human body would show up an infrared film or infrared detector very, very strong. And, you know, uh, ghost hunters with paranormal phenomena, you know, that, that's one thing. Everybody tries to use infrared, but um, my idea is that, and I've had some success with it, is, in, is using uh, UV. And I, I've also designed some filters, which I uh, put together up at MIT. And uh, these are what, what are called interference filters, and they block out 
most of the other types of electromagnetic radiation and just let in a very narrow band of um, of a part of the spectrum towards the UV. And um, um, so far, preliminary results, you know, you have to adapt into a camera. That's a problem, too, with the digital stuff. That's not very mm-hmm. good. But um, it's picking up things in the UV that are around us that, uh, you know, we normally can't see. And, uh, you know, what, what I usually say is that, you know, with today's technology, the technology is out there to make a detailed study of the paranormal. The technology that's available just has to be modified because it wasn't built for that purpose, but it can be used to study the paranormal. The problem is, is that the so-called paranormal investigators out there, UFO investigators, they have no idea how to use this equipment. So, uh, you know, you, you get all kinds of uh, crazy results, and they're not using these, this, this type of equipment. And they're still using the old infrared stuff and, you know, the, these, these magnetom, little handheld magnetometers and, and temperature gauge things. You know, all that equipment, that's, that's not even accurate. It's all junk. And um, um, so when you talk about, you know, TV paranormal investigators, you know, most of the time everything's scripted anyway, so they're not really discovering or, or finding anything mm-hmm. or not even using the equipment properly. One of the things uh, that you, you sort of end that section of the book on uh, is a letter that you got from someone who said, hey, one of those objects, a cylinder that has some strange markings on it, um, what was it, the CIA he worked for saw that too? Yeah, it, they pulled it out of their files, and um, um, it, it was a person who was a, an imaging science scientist at NOAA. And uh, the thing is, is that uh, uh, CIA representatives came in and took uh, most of those images out of NOAA and uh, put a national security classification on them. The thing is, is that the CIA piggybacks cameras on these satellites for spying. <laughs> They're not supposed to because these are primarily scientific satellites. So if you, but if you want to hide some type of surveillance satellite, I mean, you hide it with a weather satellite. So when it passes over your country, you can say, you know, to the Chinese or the Russians, oh, don't worry, that's just a weather satellite passing over your country. And on there is a another camera that's high resolution, which is operated by the NSA and another one by the CIA, which transmits at a different frequency, which is actually used for spying. And it's these high resolution cameras that, um, you know, are also picking up uh, some pretty unusual stuff around our planet. And, uh, uh, it, it's quite interesting. Mm-hmm. And you also say in the book that you still have some from back in the day of your military service, friends who are active in the CIA and are sort of you know pretty prominent there. Do you get the sense from them or from any of these letters that you have received that you find credible, uh, do you get the sense that they know more than they're saying about this stuff or that they know less than we think they know about all of this stuff? You know, uh, it depends upon who you talk to because 
the people who deal with, I think, the paranormal in the government and the UFOs, it's a very narrow, it's a very small group. In other words, you know, it, it could be attached to the CIA, the NSA, it could be even another secret organization, but whoever they are, it, it, it's a very small group with a need-to-know basis, and they don't share information with, um, um, you know, uh, um, the military and so on on a regular basis. I don't think they have to. Yes, I do have a friend, a close friend, in the CIA, and, uh, you know, we served in the military together. I got out, and he stayed in, and the result is, you know, he got... He became a company man in the CIA. And, you know, he, he called me up one time and said, you know, when I was investigating um, the, uh, the sightings in the Hudson Valley and uh, I discovered these underground passages um, and tunnels underground where, you know, people have been seeing strange-looking entities and beings coming out of and military activity and so on, he called me up and said, back away from this one. Hmm. Well, <laughs> that's that's where we were going next. So let's get into that because uh, I found it interesting that Heineck, uh, toward the end of well, I guess his life, he said um, that he really didn't think that this was nuts and bolts craft from another planet. That you should look closer to home. That it was perhaps interdimensional, and that you specifically should look at the Hudson Valley since there seemed to be a bunch of um, activity going on around there, and that's what got you interested. I didn't realize. That's what got you sort of hooked on the stone chambers and, and making all those discoveries, was Heineck's suggestion? Yeah, well, you know, it, it was very cryptic, um, what he said. It, it, it's as if he was trying to tell me something in a direction to look without giving me, um, you know, a, a, a great deal of information. And uh, he said um, primarily, you know, look for windows. And um, he said that he would be very disappointed if UFOs turned out to be nothing more than somebody else's spaceships from another another star system. He said he believed that the answer was more exotic than that. Well, according to I did a lot of research in the area, and you know I did a lot of research. One of the one of the uh, the great advantages I had, I mean, you know, as a scientist, is that studying the UFO phenomena. When you study the UFO phenomena, you study a great variety of paranormal phenomena. One of the problems that so-called UFO investigators have, one of their shortcomings is that, you know, they're looking for tales of spaceships and aliens or so on, and, and they isolate themselves into that belief, in, and they're like, you know, horses walking with blinders on the side, is that they're not seeing the entire picture. They're rejecting other types of cases that uh, are, are associated with UFOs, other types of paranormal phenomena, which are attached to the UFO phenomena. And this stuff is all dimensional stuff. And one of the advantages, like I said, I had in the Hudson Valley is that um, you know, I had all of these strange going-ons, UFOs, you know, apparitions, uh, electromagnetic phenomena, sightings of strange creatures and abduction reports and close encounters of every kind, you know, right in my backyard. So here was a laboratory, <laughs> you know, that I could study this material and, um, and, and, and analyze the data. And I, and, I, and I have been for years, and I still am. And when Dr. Heineck said to me, well, look for windows, 
I was able, actually, finally, to plot all this information on a very large map. And uh, I noticed that the, with the paranormal phenomena and the UFO stuff, that there were actual points. And these points were ammunition points or centering point or whatever you want to call them. And when I went out to these areas, I always found one of these stone structures. And it seems that somebody was building these stone structures um, to mark this area as being something strange. And, and that leads into a whole other area of research because the stone structures are lost in time. Nobody really knows who built them. There is evidence now through my research and the research that others are doing that these structures were built thousands of years ago. And they're not randomly placed. Today, they're built over areas of intense negative magnetic anomalies. So here we see these stone structures, which are very old, built by a race who knows really who they were. They're built over these areas of intense negative magnetic anomalies. There's legends of these locations of strange phenomena, and today we're still seeing, seeing strange phenomena reported in these areas, including UFO sightings. So I believe that there are these multiple nodes or dimensional windows um, around the world that open up for some various reason um, I don't know if it's a natural thing or somebody on the other side has control over opening and closing these uh, Dr. Heineck's so-called windows. Mm -hmm. Well, you had started mentioning uh, the underground tunnels, and in the book you talk about these underground mines, and that you had discovered that some of them, uh, it seems as though modern, some sort of modern technology has picked off uh, where the, the old 1800s technology left off. Or picked up where it left off. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. How did you determine that, and what was the well? Result? Yeah, well, you know, um, it it all started when I saw a. Um, it all started when I saw a um, uh, an article in the New York Post. And um, in the New York Post, uh, somebody was saying with all of these UFO sightings that they were seeing government vehicles going into the back roads where the old abandoned mines are. Nobody really knows where the mine entrances were. And uh, that intrigued me to investigate further. And, um, well, to make a very long story short, you know, visits and explore visits to the historical societies and, and looking up the old mining journals and just surveying the countryside. And, and I finally found, you know, many of these mine entrances that lead underground. And one of them um, is called the the Croton Magnetic Mine and the Brewster Mine in Brewster, New York. And one thing that's interesting is that the entire downtown Brewster is catacombed by underground passages, and some of them lead up to the basements of some of the old houses. And that uh, these, uh, these, these, this catacomb, this network of underground tunnels, you know, goes down as far as 300 feet below the ground. 
there's a first level that's 75, another level 150, and another level that's 300 feet below the ground. Very mysterious. Well, studying the old mining journals, and um, I finally went into um, many of these mines and explored them and charted them, the first one to be in there in 100 years. Very dangerous, very spooky. And um, from the old mining journals, I found um, the tunnels, and then I found new tunnels, which seemed to be seemed to have been cut with more modern equipment. These new tunnels were not listed in the mining journals of the early 1900s and the late 1800s, and uh, it seems that. I believe that at one time someone was using these underground tunnels, uh, probably the military or a member of the government, and that uh, by the time I got in there, they had vacated the place and moved out because some of the tunnels went into dead ends where you can see that the ceilings and the walls were purposely collapsed to seal them and that the tunnels were now flooding with water. So I have other evidence that um, these were being used at one time. I had seen um, um, people operating in and out of the entrances when I was surveying them um, back in the late 1990s. Um, but it's, it's very mysterious because of my friend, uh, my associate, who by the way, with the CIA, who actually used to uh, work for me when I was in the military, he called me. I asked him about the underground tunnels, and he, he said that he had seen um, request forms for equipment and um, biological containment um, equipment to be sent somewhere into the Brewster area. And um, and then we got into UFOs and something like that. And then he called me back and said, of course, you know, back away from this one. Um, but I believe that there was some type of operation there while the UFO sightings were going on, and that if it was the United States government, people had seen helicopters and military in the area, um, that they pulled out um, somewhere around 1999. Mm -hmm. So I guess sort of putting this all together, if it's even possible, do you get the impression that one, well, I guess this one's sort of the give, <laughs> the gimme, which is uh, that someone in the government actually does care about this stuff, even though publicly they claim not to, but that two, they have backed off the nuts and bolts things from another planet, and they are sort of either certain or, or looking in the direction of interdimensional channels or windows. Well, you know, to answer your question, I know for a fact that the government, uh, the military and members of the government do care about UFOs. I've had enough contact with them. Matter of fact, you know, I'm the only civilian UFO investigator that was directly contacted by the Air Force since Project Blue Book closed. And the way I was being interrogated as to the content of my book, Night Siege, the Hudson Valley UFO sightings, before it was published, you can tell that there was an interest. But the major I was talking to was obviously just collecting information for somebody else of higher rank. There's no doubt about 
that because you can tell he had a job to do. He was going through a list of questions for me. And, um, and the thing is, is that, okay, you know, the Air Force claims that they don't exist. There's no threat to national security. So when the sightings took place in the Hudson Valley, you know, they became very concerned. And he admitted that the Air Force was very concerned about these sightings, that they did not know what they were. They obviously were studying, and if they weren't, why call me, you know? So, and also, I had a lot of uh, interference with government agencies uh, because of the sightings over the Indian Point nuclear reactor in Buchanan, New York in 1984, and uh, that caused quite a stir, and I had um, letters and phone calls and visits by, by, by government people because there are security guards out there who are ex-military and military and an ex-New York State police officer, you know, they stood right under this object that they said was the size of two football fields over the only working reactor. And they wanted to know what I was told. And there was a security clamp down on the information that went out. And, uh, and you know, that was, you know, the second time. You know, one time directly, you know, when I had a video of the UFO, um, you know, a person from the National Security Agency, you know, wanted the video. And I said no. And he said, you know, Phil, the government has done away with people for less. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, so there's this interest out there. And I could give you more examples of over the years, for some reason or another, that I, you know, I've had contact with uh, people in in the government in the military regarding my investigation into the UFO phenomena, and yes, there seems to be uh, uh, an idea uh, or something in the government that these things are dimensional. At least some of them are, and that they're trying to obtain the technology uh, from uh, from these uh, this intelligence. Hmm. Um, just I guess one more question before I hand off to my partner in crime here, um, and it's sort of a sidebar thing, just because you're so synonymous with the Hudson Valley UFOs, um, of course, the latest debunking, or trying to debunk it, is uh, the group of guys who came out and said, yeah, they were just uh, flying some personal planes in a formation, and they hoaxed everybody. Um, did you, do you know those people? Did you, did they ever come forward with that then, you know what? or is it all new? You know what? That's not new. That that's happened after the UFO sightings. Uh, obviously, planes appeared in the area, and they were trying to imitate the UFO. So people who didn't see the UFO looked at it and said, oh, "That's one of what people must be seeing." People who saw the UFO then saw the plane, saying, "You know, this is not what I saw." But the bottom line here is this, and I'm. I finally released the information in my new book, is that during the investigation, um, there were two groups of pilots. One were just amateur pilots who flew in loose formation. They really didn't fool anybody. Then there were a second group of pilots that were military, and they were flying Cessna O2s, and, uh, O2s rather, and, um, which is used by the CIA for surveillance. They're very quiet computer-run 
um, type of aircraft. This pilot called me, and he told me that they were instructed to fly around the Hudson Valley, all the way up to Cape Cod, then back again, and they were flying unconventional aircraft with unconventional lighting, and he, they weren't given a purpose as to why they were doing this, but this particular person was a CIA operative. He was also a captain in American Airlines. Um, so that's the first thing, but, you know, they, they didn't start flying until well after the UFOs were spotted. So it seemed that there was some type of operation to contain the situation, which what they did nicely. But the bottom line is, is that we have a clear video from July 24, 1984, of the UFO in Brewster, New York, 15 minutes before it appeared over the Indian Point nuclear reactor in Buchanan, New York. Now, that videotape, through an associate, was sent to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, the most anti-UFO organization in the world. At the time, Dr. Lou Allen was the director of JPL. Dr. Lou Allen is also one of the names that's loosely associated with all of this MJ-12 stuff. Anyway... A friend of Lou Allen's, the doctor, you know, the director of JPL, arranged for him to look at the tape and his imaging scientists. And I have a letter that was sent to his friend concerning the tape, saying they looked at the tape, and it was their opinion, and from their analysis, that the lights in the video represented one rigid object, not individual objects. That's all we wanted to know. We didn't want to know if it was a spaceship. We wanted to know if the lights represented one rigid object or individual objects. If it was individual objects, we can say that the sightings could have been planes. If it was one rigid object, that would rule out the plane theory completely. And JPL, the most anti-UFO organization in the world with the top imaging scientists, came back with their conclusions that the object in the video was one rigid object, quote. Hmm. Jeff? Well, I, I get a little creeped out when we start talking about the Hudson Valley because many years ago, with my first research partner, I went to Pine Bush, New York, and I've actually written Phil about the things we saw up there, but I don't think I've ever mentioned it on the show. But, uh, Phil, one of the things that um, that I remember was sitting at the McDonald's on the main oh, drag yeah. right, next exactly Sear- where it is. right next to Searsville Road. And uh, I, I just want to go through each of the things that we saw or, or felt there, and uh, I'd just like you to comment a little bit on each of these things. Number one would be uh, upon the night that we got there, uh, we actually stayed for an entire 24 to 36 hour period. As I remember it, Uh, we were sitting on the edge of the McDonald's parking lot. And uh, there was a fence that basically bordered, I guess what at the time was just an open field with some pines here and there. Um, and uh, and we we saw a lemur uh, on the fence. I mean, it was, this was clearly a lemur, uh, which has no bearing on something living in New York, uh, but kind of fits in line with other stories that we had heard at the time of 
animals that don't seem to belong to the area showing up there. Oh, yeah. Uh, can you give me anything on that? Because <laughs> that, that was a very weird uh, initial sighting that we had there that, that really just struck us incredibly strange. Yeah, um, you know, I don't really know the cause of it, but, you know, there's, if you talk about that there are, you know, these dimensional creatures, and uh, they do, do pop in from, from these other realities. Um, for example, if you're on the east side of the Hudson or the west side of the Hudson, which is the Hudson River Valley and Pine Bush in that area, Allenville, also was the scene of, you know, massive UFO sightings and a lot of paranormal phenomena. And on both sides we're getting, you know, sights, uh, sightings of strange creatures. And even like Bigfoot-like creatures, which is very bizarre. I mean... So, you know, so that this is that this is going on, you know, it, it's not surprising because I believe that these UFOs that we're seeing here actually come from a, a parallel reality, a parallel dimension. When they open up that window, they may also bring in something else with them. And um, um, it, it's all very strange, and, and it, you know, it needs to be studied in greater detail. But so many people have had had incredible encounters out in that area that uh, it's, 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 it's a phenomenal thing. And too bad, you know, you know there's n- not a bunch of experts going out there with you know, unlimited funding to really solve the problem as to what's really going on. What do you um, what do you think is the the absolute fascination with uh, uh, with Searsville Road? I know that, uh, and I'm I'm sure you're familiar with Ellen Crystal. Oh yeah, uh, no, I don't. I, I knew I knew Ellen very well. Uh, and Bruce Cornett, who is another name that's almost uh, synonymous, at least in my mind, for right. the Pine Bush information. Mm-hmm. Um. I haven't had the most pleasant interactions with Bruce, but uh, but he certainly has been a, a a mainstay of someone investigating that whole area. Uh, I think the other thing that I wanted to mention to you was uh, uh, going back uh, Searsville Road. I would say it was, if I'm remembering correctly, you go out from the McDonald's, make a left, and down the road on your right-hand side is the Jewish Cemetery. Right. Uh, Before you hit that, is it possible to make a left onto Searsville Road heading in that same direction? I believe it is, yes. Okay. I think we went back that direction, and this was during daylight hours. I would say this was anywhere between 3 and 5 o'clock. I actually shot video of uh, an Army helicopter dropping out soldiers uh, into a field. That's what is that all about? And, you know what? And, yeah, yeah it, you know what? I'm glad. I was just thinking about that. That's amazing. I had reports from people. They got knocks on the door, and um, uh, and there were soldiers, and they were saying people in a particular area to stay inside your house. And they looked out their windows, and they saw helicopters coming down, and the fields in area were being there were soldiers coming out there, and they were told that it was some type of practice operation. Now, 
the thing is, is that if you can do a practice operation, come on, you don't do it in a populated area like that and interfere with people. But they even saw people parachuting down, and the, and the military cut off the entire area. And this happened more than once. Now, what is going on? Well, from my sources and from what I found out is that the military is currently engaged in trying to capture one of these dimensional beings that has the ability to move in and out of our dimension by some type of technology. They're hoping, they were hoping to capture this being to take the technology from them. It's almost like a scene from the movie Predator, you know, with Danny Glover, Predator 2. And uh, this has happened on more than one occasion. And so this is what you may have seen, but uh, um, it's an amazing story. I mean, I know that that was private land because clearly there was a driveway going back to a a farmhouse. This was someone's farmhouse area. Oh, yeah. And uh, we immediately stopped the car. However, I didn't want to hang around too awfully long. Um, That that was back in the days of having a a full-size VHS tape that went into the camera. So that's how long ago that that's been. Um, I think one of the last things that we saw there was going back out of town, uh, again, on the main drag, you wind as I, and I'm remembering this all from memory. So you forgive me if I, if I don't explain this correctly, but I know that you go around a mountain to which you can look down over the side of the hill and see what is a hang gliding school of some sort. Um, There was a large, uh, I mean, immediately when we went up on the side of this mountain uh, to work our way into town, we saw what looked like a crop circle, but it was actually a target for hand gliding. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we have the hand gliders in that general area. Um, Going back beside of that, you'll go across, I think, a small bridge, and you come to a convenience store, which is right on the corner that faces that mountain. Uh, as we were leaving, which was, uh, again, probably about 2 to 3 o'clock in the morning, we saw a very bright gold light at the upper left side of the mountain that was right across from this store. Uh, we immediately jumped in the truck, uh, bolted up there uh, at the, well, I should say that the, the lady at the store, when we pointed it out to her, she was completely oblivious to it. Uh, could care less. She's like, yeah, you can go up there, but you're not going to see anything. Uh, and she was right. Uh, when we got to what we thought was the exact spot uh, on this mountain, there was nothing to be seen whatsoever. But again, coming back down the mountain, it was still there. Mm. Uh, so it had a, a strange, uh, I don't know if you could call it a mirage-like quality to it, where apparently the closer you got, the less visible it was. Uh, but at any rate, at our on our way out of town, uh, I passed along the road, and I was not about to stop because, it, to, frankly, the whole the entire place largely creeps me out uh, in a big way. I had not slept the night before because we slept literally in the back of the truck uh, the night before. I didn't sleep a wink, so I was already pretty exhausted um, and very creeped out. Uh, Leaving the area, I passed on on the right side of the road what seemed to be a large, maybe six to eight foot tall ball of smoke. 
what was that? Or, or has that been seen before there? I mean, it seemed to have definite density as a, as a spherical object, but it looked as if it was made of a grayish white smoke. Ever hear of anything like that there? Many times. <laughs> on both sides of the Hudson. And okay. sometimes, you know, this, this so-called smoke is seen to, to take shape and form. Hmm. Has, and, has anybody, has anyone gotten reasonably decent photographs of something like that or, uh, or, or even interacted with it or tried to interact with it? Um, yeah, but it, it, it keeps its distance. And there is a photograph um, of somebody who took it. But see, the photograph shows something that's uh, very brilliant. Mm-hmm. while the people who were watching it say that it was barely visible to their eye. Right. Hmm. So but it but in the image it comes out very bright. So which you know it's 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 emitting uh light and electromagnetic radiation um in an area where the human eye isn't sensitive. So whatever these things are they can practically, you know, interact and be com- almost completely invisible to us. Hmm. What do you think the the reason would be for, uh, I mean, I would say the entire time that we were up there, the only time someone said something to us about get out of here, don't hang around, was when we pulled up next to the Jewish cemetery. We immediately had, I guess, the town police officer stop and say, what are you guys doing? Uh, we let him know what we were doing. Uh, we related to him that we had no permission uh, to investigate anywhere in a field, and we were not exiting the vehicle under any circumstances on Searsville Road. Um, but he seemed acutely aware that we were not supposed to be around the Jewish cemetery. Now, I know that there's been a lot of very strange things seen around that general concentrated area. Um, I know one of the things that was mentioned in Ellen Crystal's book was uh, red lightning of some kind of sort shooting up out of the ground around there. Uh, I know that that's been reported by other people in that general area that I've spoken with. Um, for anybody out there who doesn't put a, a great deal of stock in Ellen's uh, work, um, there that has been reported by other people. Uh, is there anything that you've done work-wise in that cemetery that would say that there's a, a much higher magnetic anomaly area around that general vicinity? Well, there is. I mean, there, there's, there's pockets of intense magnetic anomalies in that particular area. Uh, yes, there is. And um, I was down there uh, a good number of times in, on Searsville Road, and, um, and, and unfortunately, I didn't have any experiences or see anything. But, you know, when I was down there a number of times, there were large groups of people just gathering mm-hmm. around. So I can see why the local um, constable is getting a little upset. <laughs> sure. I, mean, I mean, you know, over, over on, on the west, the, over on the east, the, west, the, the east side of the Hudson, you know, around the towns of Carmel and so on, when the UFO is being spotted, there's an area on Route 301 which crosses across the reservoir, Causeway, 
and uh, uh, it, it has a, a very open view. And, and for night, night after night, hundreds of people would just line up on that causeway and just watch the skies until 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. And after a while, the police just had to come and start breaking them up and patrol the area. So the same thing happened really over in Pine Bush in those particular areas. The, uh, the local uh, uh, police um, were alerted that, um, you know, there's uh, the people hanging out there and they should be careful as to what's, watch them as to what's going on. But there's also military presence there. And the military presence may have had some authority or effect on the decisions of the local police to uh, make sure people are not in particular areas. Uh, I'm sure you're aware. I mean, in recent years, has Searsville Road not been closed to general public in that in that you cannot go um, sit beside the road in that general area anymore? That that road is largely closed now. Am I right? Well, it is restricted, but mm-hmm. it was open at one time. Sure. Yeah, we were you we know, were all over that road that night. Yeah, if you remember, you go down the road. If you park your car, there are if you're um, there, there are like open fields to the right, which mm-hmm. um, separate. And there's been a lot of like uh, Bigfoot-like creature sightings in mm-hmm. that particular area. And when I was down there, you know, um, it was completely open, and you can go from one end of, of Searsville to the other. But now I hear it's restricted and um, um, it's patrolled, so that uh, you know, you if you go down there, you, there's no no. Uh, no passage. You can't go through to go to the other side of the road without, you know, getting a ticket or something like that if you're caught. Um, but uh, for some reason or another, yes, the local authorities and probably with the influence of somebody else um, restricted travel on that road. Now, with uh, again going back to Ellen Crystal's book, uh, which was called "Silent Invasion," if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, have you examined any of her original photographs that she oh, took? Yeah. Which do, do you find any of those particularly compelling? Um, I, I had arguments with her over her video material mm-hmm. uh, many times because, um, you know, um, for the last part of her life, she used to live in, in down in the, uh, the Catskill area. And, um, um, and I spent some time with her down there. We went over the, her video stuff, and I tried to convince her that uh, what she was, uh, most of the stuff she was videotaping were, were C5As landing at Stewart Airport. Mm-hmm. And she disagreed with me, of course, you know, and got a little angry, and she was very defensive about um, some of the things she had. And I, could, I told her that they were planes that she has. And then she, she she said to me, well, the UFOs can look like planes, so that's how they mask themselves. And I'm saying to myself, well, you know, uh, then what could you do about that? You're not going to argue with this person that what she videotaped was planes. But she had uh, a couple of videos of something in the sky, something very strange, um, and um, and I really couldn't explain that or, or as as aircraft or any type of aircraft. And uh, despite all of her hundreds of hours of video that she took, I think she did get um, a, a few minutes of of some anomalous phenomena. Yeah. 
What about as far as her still photographs? I know that one in particular she claimed showed uh, a bunch of non-human entities behind some sort of craft that was on the ground. And what looked like to me was some sort of small fireworks going off uh, right around them, which she claimed were some sort of radioactive emissions of some kind, which was why they were showing up on film. She claimed at the time she saw absolutely nothing. But I'm sure, as you know, she claimed to uh, get uh, telepathic messages that she was supposed to shoot in this direction or that direction. Right. Um, And I I, I mean, I I only bring her up and I only bring Bruce Cornett up uh, in the sense that I think largely on television, this is these are the two people you hear most often associated with, because I think a lot of the programs still being run are reruns from the old sightings days. Um. Uh, Bruce Coronet, when I inter- interacted with him many, many years ago, uh, was showing a lot of the same things, which were airplanes on approach. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we had uh, one very heated argument over, uh, I, I believe it was video that he had shot, where I clearly did some image work on it and showed that it had a fuselage on the front and a Delta tail fin and the whole bit. This was an airplane. Um, and again, I got much the same response as you did. It was a very antagonistic argument and, uh, um, and all of that. However, I don't doubt that, um, Ellen and, and Bruce both had probably seen some sort of anomalous activity up there because it seems to be so pervasive in that general area. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but, but ultimately, you know, what do you think of, uh, um, of that kind, I guess, how how damaging is this sort of thing to the area when you get people like yourself who treat this with a, a large degree of critical thought and then you have the other side of things, which doesn't seem to work that way? How, uh, how, how damaging yeah. is that to the overall picture here? Well, it is because, you know, as Dr. Heineck said once, um, you know, there's uh, a lot of people with crazy ideas and, and stuff like that, and unfortunately, much of the media isn't paying attention to the serious research that's being done in UFOs. The media has a field day with uh, people who are, who are doing this sort of thing, and it's always been a history of that. So it, it, it's damaging to the fact that, um, you know, um, it, it, it doesn't really give credibility to to the to the topic of ufos you know and you're talking about you know certain people like ellen crystal you know i knew ellen and and you know she was very sincere about what she was doing Mm -hmm. and that's good but there are people who are out there who are not sincere about what they're doing in ufos and but um you know but the fact is is that you know there are many people who you know, they want to believe that they're getting telepathic messages. They want to believe that they have special connection that takes them out of this world. They want to believe that they've done something extraordinary rather than, you know, most people to get attention. But overall, most of these people, you know, like the late Alan Crystal, they, they, they really want to believe too much. And I think when you want to believe too much, um, it gets in the way of objective uh, research. 
And uh, when I look into cases and go out to cases, I have no idea what I'm getting into. I just collect the facts and, and see where they're going to fall and come with a logical conclusion. And one of the conclusions after all these years I have is that the UFO phenomena is very real and it is very complex. Mm. Uh, I think I should say that one of the reasons that my partner and I went out there was that we got a got permission actually to visit a home in the general area that um, uh, a woman claimed that she was seeing out of her front window uh, flashes of very bright white light uh, on the left side of her driveway and saw what she related to us as being small naked children running to a tree uh, to the right side of her front lawn and another bright white flash, and they were gone. Uh, her husband and her were, I believe, I don't want to say elderly, but they were definitely up in years. Um, and one of the things that she related to us was that she had small construction, the, the small orange, maybe four inch by four inch flags, like they planted a construction site or a survey site. Uh, along her front driveway. And two of those flags on adjacent sides of the driveway were blowing with absolutely no wind whatsoever in the area. Uh, They blew at a consistent rate. I saw these. I cupped them in my hands. Uh, Are you at all familiar with this? Uh, Does this ring a bell to you? Well, I'm familiar with the sightings of the little children-like beings in that area. Some of them have been reported by uh, quite a few residents in the Pine Bush Ellenville area. And if you look at this from a historical point of view, these little creatures have been spotted in the hills in that particular area since uh, the 1600s. And um, and there, I, I even have some cases where people, where these beings came right through the walls in the house and have taken these people. And uh, numerous abduction cases where these little beings have walked in the house, but no UFOs have been spotted. These people have no conscious recollection after the beings came in through the closet area. It got so frequent with some of the people in the area that one particular family started lining up, you know, pillows and couches near the closet entrance to slow down these creatures, but it didn't do it. I mean, the thing is is that things were so happening so much out there is that uh, once a week people were meeting in like a town meeting sort of style um, down in um, Pinebush, and just relating um, all of their experiences. And mm-hmm. it, it got pretty incredible because both sides of the Hudson, the east and west side, were pretty hot that time with not only UFOs and alien abductions and close encounters of all kinds, but also other forms of paranormal phenomena which seem to have just, you know, burst into the scene uh, with the UFOs. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, um, although it's slowed down considerably since that time, it seems to be picking up again. It is picking up. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, for our listeners, I think I have to say that one of the things, and, and it's funny that you mentioned this about the people in town, I think the thing that kind of set me on end a little bit too much was that in Pine Bush during the daytime, this is a fairly uh, interesting little... I don't know, rock climbing, hand gliding, 
community. It almost seems resort-like in a way, and that there's so many things to do up there related to hiking and nature and all of that. And and fairly fairly busy little little place too. Mm-hmm. At nighttime, it's like Black Bart's coming to town. Yeah. Yeah, it's dead. The window shades go down, the doors yep. get locked, the lights on outside get turned down, and there is no one on the people, road. People stay <laughs> off the streets, and they stay <laughs> off the uh, thing. You know, and also in Ellenville, which is close to Pine, Pine Bush, mm-hmm. um, and that particular area, there are also underground tunnels, and no one has any idea who built them. Is there anything in your... In your travels that you've heard about uh, these very mysterious wells that are dotted throughout that whole area? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, can you oh, yeah. T- t- talk a little bit about those? Because that's something I've brought up, and no one has any idea what I'm talking about when I talk about the wells. Yeah, um, well, there are enormous pits that are dug that are filled with water now. And, uh, and f- from what I can figure, you know, by studying them, um, they're, on, they're, in the, they're on both sides of the Hudson Valley, east and west, over, my, over, over here in, over in New York, and they're over in the Pine Bush area, is that uh, these are tunnels that, the, these are, are pits that connect with the tunnels, and they're filled with water now. And they could have been used at one time as ventilation shafts, but no one seems to know who built them. And uh, and I have seen this also in a number of different other states, like Georgia, Kentucky, Tennessee, where there's a, a great deal of spook light, globes of light that, you know, walk go up and down the highway, ghostly lights. They call them ghost lights, spook lights. I guess they call them UFOs now. But they, these are areas that also have um, pits like this, uh, wells, as they're called, because they're filled with water. Um, they're very old, and at one time, some of them were probably used, it looked like, by colonials as wells uh, to collect water. But um, the historical societies in the local areas have no idea uh, on where these, these, these things come from. Has there been anything said in colonial records about weird stuff in the area? I mean, you would think oh, yeah. that, that of those people, of anyone, would have something to say about oh. uh, demons in the air and that witches you know, and all that sort. From the present day, going all the way back to the to the to the early 1700s and the late 1600s. There's numerous sightings, and back then, of course, they were associated with the supernatural, and today we're associating them with aliens. But people are basically listening to the same thing. Now, if you look at the story of Rip Van Winkle that t- took place in the Catskills, which is that particular area, uh, I mean, it's based on a story that um, Washington Irving, you know, heard about these little men who run through the hills and take people. And, um, I mean, you know, so, you know, these story and, and the legend says that these, these men are actually the ghosts of the crew of Henry Hudson uh, um, that are roaming the hills. And the story from there goes that Henry Hudson, when he came up and down the Hudson, his crew stopped around the area of um, um, Ellenville and along the Hudson there, and they came inland and um, 
I think 18 or 20 of his men went into the hills and never came out, and one of them said they were taken by little men. So the legend says that the... Uh, the, the little men are up in the hills, and the ghosts of the uh, uh, the crew of Henry Hudson is up there also. But you go right from that time until the present day, and you see stories of strange and unusual phenomena. My gosh, you know, the Hudson Valley also is where the story of the Headless Horseman was born. I mean, so it's been an area of strange phenomena for for, for a few centuries. I mean, it's mind-blowing to me. And, and you say it's been quiet in recent years? Yeah, it's been quiet, but it's picking up again. And uh, it's picking up again um, with UFO sightings, and it's picking up again with other types of paranormal phenomena. And um, um, I think that within the next two years, we're going to see another explosive um, generation of uh, a lot of this strange phenomena in that particular area, and in um, and over in Putnam County, which is on the west side of the Hudson, I see we're going to start seeing the West Indies Hudson getting a lot of paranormal phenomena again, as well as a number of places around the world. Now, now, do you see that? Because um, uh, I notice I've been hearing a little bit about the same of of golf breeze when I spoke to uh, Bland Pugh down there some time ago in emails. He had mentioned it. I said, well, are, are there any sightings still going on in Gulf Breeze? And, and what are people seeing? And he says, well, there's, there's still sightings here and there, but nothing like what it used to be. Uh, and I mentioned, did the crowd still gather at Shoreline Park? And he says, oh, no, they haven't done that for a very long time. Uh, people basically got tired of seeing the same thing and stopped going. And then when they stopped going, it stopped showing up. <laughs> Um, do you think we're seeing sort of the same thing with the renewed interest in the the paranormal and the uh, UFO thing in general in recent years, that that's why this is picking back up? Uh, I think that it's it's reversed. I think Hmm. because there is an increase now in the paranormal and UFO sightings, people are having more experiences and people are getting more interested. Um, Right, right, that's what I mean, yeah. yeah. Yeah, normally, you know, when a movie comes out about UFOs or the paranormal, people get interested in it because they see the movie or they see the television special or whatever. But all of these things on the media about the paranormal and UFOs, they came about because of the demand from the public who were having these experiences. So this time... The situation reversed. For example, last year, um, last April, um, NBC Dateline did a whole show on UFOs. NBC doing show on UFOs, that was taboo for them for years. But they came out and did did a show on UFOs. I was on it. Bruce McAbee was on it. They did the 10 most perplexing UFO cases in history. Hudson Valley and Pine Bush was number five. But... You see, they did it because of the public interest, and the public interest is hot because people are having all of these experiences, and people are looking for answers. Hmm. Well, I'm 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 curious if you at all subscribe to the idea that I've had about this thing, and that the more attention that you seem to pay to it, and the more devotion that you give to looking. Uh, 
then the more you seem to get from the other side of the table, which is recognition or um, manifestation, whatever you want to call it, uh, of the phenomena itself. Do you Have you seen that in your own work, going up there as much as you have and studying that area for as long as you have? Have you noticed that uh, there seems to be that sort of symbiotic relation between attention and manifestations or viewing of the phenomena? Yes, I've noticed that. And um, this is where I keep on talking to people about this connection, that this dimensional intelligence seems to need to connect with people. And once our minds are open, uh, we seem to almost reestablish or, or help them establish a conduit into our reality. And I think it has a lot to do with, uh, you know, the way people are thinking and, and, and their state of mind. And people are opening up to all this, and, and it's probably one of the reasons, but there are a few other reasons, why the phenomena is starting to generate again. What do you think the other reasons are? Well, the other reasons are because of the magnetic anomalies. And um, I believe, see, people in the past, uh, researchers have been saying, oh, you go to these areas where there's a lot of magnetism and so on, you get UFOs. Well, you know, I, I, I took that into consideration, but um, um, I found just the opposite. I found that areas of negative magnetic anomalies seem to be points of the generation of the phenomena much more frequently. Now, these areas of magnetic anomalies are, are areas where the Earth's magnetic field actually loops over itself. And it's, it's done that. It, it does that because of a number of reasons. The geology in the area, which is usually magnetite or iron ore, takes these magnetic lines of force and twists them around and braids them. But if you can imagine like a shoelace, okay, you mm -hmm. wrap a shoelace around each other, uh, two shoelaces, and when you do that, there's little openings between areas of the nodes where it crosses over. If you pull it tight, those little openings disappear. That would be an increase in the magnetic field. However, if you don't pull it tight, you have these little openings in there, and these are, are portals that open up to another dimension, not another universe, but another dimension. So what causes the fact? In these areas right there are negative magnetic anomalies, and it seems that magnetic fields have a tendency to close these portals open. But areas of negative magnetic anomalies tend to be areas where these portals can open up to this other reality, this other dimension in our physical universe that we can't see. And uh, why is that happening right now? You know, the sun has a, a direct effect on the intensity and the shape of the Earth's magnetic field. Recently, the sun has been very quiet. Even though we're in a solar maximum, and that maximum is going to peak in the year 2012, we practically see no activity on the sun. And this is very strange, and it got a lot of astrophysicists who were up at MIT very concerned as to what's going on with our sun. But the thing is, is that this causes the Earth's magnetic field to develop these negative magnetic anomalies, which are associated, I believe, and I've showed it um, in some of my research, are associated with areas of paranormal phenomena 
When we see a lot of activity on the sun in particular, we see an increase in the Earth's magnetic field, deflection of the Earth's magnetic field. These nodes close up, and we see practically no UFO activity. So do you think it's coincidental that the sun has been very quiet these number of years, and during this time period we have seen an increase in UFO sightings and the generation of a great amount of other types of paranormal phenomena. There is no coincidence. There is a connection. Hmm. Uh, I, I have to wonder, uh, as, you're, as you're saying this, because I, I think, I think, well, at least for me, I can say that, uh, I don't know, within the past, I'm going to say, three to four months, uh, my own experiences have seemed to ramped up um, pretty pretty good. <laughs> um, definitely not uh, what it's been, I'd say, in the past 10 years, uh, because I, I had been, uh, well, I don't want to say dormant, but I had been without significant experiences of my own in, in around 8, 9, 10 years. Uh, and I would say within the past... I'd say three to four months that things have significantly changed for me uh, in the way of, of, of visually seeing things and, and experiences in general. Um, Does and the fact you're an experiencer, that, or is this coming out of the blue? Uh, uh, I, I'm not sure if Phil does know or not. I'm, you know, I'm, well, I'm just talking now. off the top yeah. of my head. <laughs> um, Surprise! Uh, yeah, shocker. Um, but. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very curious as to that now. You know, if you're talking about some kind of correlation between, you know, environmentals, uh, you know, then uh, having an effect on us in some way. That uh, I, I wonder if it could be, if I could go a little deeper than that and say, is it some sort of uh, magnetic field that's being shot to the earth that's actually changing everyone's perceptions a little bit and being able to realize what maybe. Uh, all around us all the time, if you get what I mean. Is, is you think that's a possibility at all? Well, I think that's a possibility. I think this is periodic in human history. You have to remember that uh, a thousand years ago, people, um, we, we, we heard of legends of strange creatures, um, little beings, you know, they call them fairies, gnomes, elves, and so on, gargoyles, and so on. But, you know, we read those stories today and we think they were just stories or myths or legends of, you know, people who lived in the, uh, you know, in the Middle Ages. But the fact is, if you read these accounts, to these people, these creatures were very real. It's like it was part of their reality. Then these creatures disappear from human history and they're not seen. And then all of a sudden... We start seeing them again. And it's very possible that once again, our, we are being conditioned to accept this and uh, because our consciousness is changing and that these creatures are going to be part of our reality once again. Hmm. And, um, I mean, you know, it's an incredible thing to think about. Well, I mean, these, these things that you find out in, in the, the Hudson Valley area with these magnetic, magnetic crypts, if you want to call them that, uh, is there, I mean, obviously you've documented that there's 
some very strange fields going on around those those structures. Um, That's correct. Is, yep. is there an increase in experiences that people have, I would say, in the immediate vicinity of those structures as opposed to anywhere else, say a control area uh, yes, around the same place? Mm-hmm. Yeah, those areas, they mark the center of the paranormal activity. I mean, you know, I've taken people out to these things, and I've had experiences out there myself. And, um, you know, people have had um, numerous experiences around these things. So, you know, these chambers, these stone chambers, they, they're, they're sitting in areas of magnet, negative magnetic anomalies, and they're marking the center of paranormal activity in that particular area. And it's not a very large area because there's clusters of these structures. And, uh, and, and, and it's not only having an experience that people see or hear or feel or touch. It's people going out there and having also these psychic experiences, too, or having visions and um, and feeling um, these things that are coming from there and hearing voices. And uh, there's a physiological effect also in these areas. For example, when you go in there, your blood pressure is lowered. But we documented it over and over again. When you go into these areas, and some of them, if you're having pain, you won't even tell them. People will say, my headache's gone, my back pain is gone. So there's a direct physiological effect uh, on uh, living creatures in this particular area. I mean, you know, magnetic fields affect animals, and there's no reason to believe that they don't affect humans in some way. They may even alter our perception to allow us to view things that would normally be invisible to us. Did you get my uh, my email about the Kogi by any chance? The Kogi the tribe? The Indian tribe? You yeah. Well, they're not. They're uh, the Colombian uh, Kogi are coming to town um, and uh, going up by the New Pulse area, going over. I guess roughly, you know, in that area where Streber's cabin was and, and all of that. Uh, there, I believe, seven elders are headed this way soon um, because they claim that they are in constant sort of meditative contact with the Earth energies and they've lost contact with a strand. And, that's, <laughs> and they've pinpointed on a map where that is and it just happens to be that area. Uh, so they're coming to, I guess, do their best to sort of heal that, whatever that means to uh, reform that connection. Does that surprise you, <laughs> that that would be the place? No, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, uh, you know, these were Native American magical spots also. I mean, you know, so, I mean, it doesn't surprise me at all. Hmm. And uh, I, I'd gotten in, uh, an email from a listener asking if uh, if we could do some sort of coordinated, you know, another go out there trip we take a bus out there or whatever and show us around is that something is that something that you do for money uh, are you a tour guide out there um oh, me yeah i mean you, you've done it just out of the kindness of your heart for like me and some friends um but is that something that that you would do for listeners if we wanted to organize something like that more than likely yeah okay cool i hear, I hear a live show coming yeah <laughs> there you go <laughs> Uh, yeah, because we still have to tackle Hawk Rock. I've still yet to see uh, Hawk Rock, which I'm excited about. Is there a better time of year to do that? Or Well, not hunting season, that's for sure. 
<laughs> When's hunting season? Is it now? Um, no, it's um, I think uh, late October and November. Okay, so maybe if maybe we could get something going for before then. You think? It's possible. Okay, cool. You know, I, I had spent um, the night out of Hawk Rock. We camped out there, a number of us. Oh, you are and, a brave uh, man. <laughs> oh, let me tell you, it was a wild <laughs> night. <laughs> I bet it was. I bet it you was. You know, there's a ceremonial platform there, and um, um, talking about, you know, the idea of shapeshifters and stuff, which are the legends from that particular area, where that there's uh, tricksters and shapeshifters that live there. And um, there were eight of us uh, camped out there, and... Um, um, I tell you, it was a, it was a wild night with all kinds of phenomenon. We, you know, even got some of the sounds taped, you know, almost like Bigfoot sightings out in the woods and sounds. And the thing is, is that, you know, we started out the evening and 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 I said, okay, everybody come together. We're going to have a you know a little point of meditation here. And I was trying to get everybody in the, the mental frame of mind and so on and so on. And you know, and and. We were doing um, just a little meditation and talking, and and as soon as we finished, out in the woods, there was this sound. It sounded like a human being trying to imitate an animal, and then it slowly shifted into the form of an animal, and it shook a lot of people there. It scared them because it was loud, and at first they thought there was some kind of psycho out there with a chainsaw, but, you know, <laughs> I mean... But then, I mean, we realized that, you know, we were dealing with something that was not, you know, uh, part of the, it was responding to what we were doing, it seemed. And then um, that shook up quite a few people there, and we actually got that taped. And um, then um, during the night, there was these red globes of light out in the woods. We're, We're deep in the woods now, and it's pitch dark, and it's August of last year. And there was these red lights that kept on appearing like eyes, red eyes out in the woods, hundreds of them all over the place. They were disappearing like they were appearing and disappearing. And what the heck is that? Then at 4 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, we're laying down, and, and there was a clearing above us. You could see up to the stars, and over us, the sky and the ground started getting really the The sky above us started getting really wavy as if you're looking through infrared waves, but it was a solid cubicle object like uh, with waves, but it was invisible. And it was passing over us, and <laughs> we're watching it and saying, you know, what the heck is that? Something enormous just passed over us very slow, which is was, was, was invisible, was, but was distorting the trees and the, uh, the sky. And what I can think of, you know, I'm thinking about the movie Predator, when he's invisible, and... Um, um, but it was a uh, a, a very interesting uh, night, and uh, there were a few people there who were skeptics uh, about the existence of unusual phenomena that left believers. <laughs> and this is at Hawk Rock, which is a very magical place. It's the only place also, by the way, where um, there are prehistoric Native American petroglyphs carved into the rock, and they're like 6,000 years old. And Hawk Rock itself is an enormous rock. It's made of granite, and it's carved like a perching hawk. And there's no, uh, you know, there's no, there's no discussion as whether it looks like a hawk or not. It's an actual sculpture. 
of this hawk that was done by primitive Native Native Americans, and it it dates probably pre Stonehenge. I mean, so, you know, and this was magical ground, sacred ground to the Native American tribes, with the Algonquin, the, the Wappinger, the Iroquois, and so on. And today, you know, it's a New York City, New York um, State watershed area, so anybody can go in there. And uh, the amount of unusual phenomena that has been seen at this location is amazing. We went out there a number of times with photography and got globes of light and and all kinds of uh, things. So there's a lot of things happening out there. And once you get into that area, you can tell you're going into some sacred area because you can feel the anomaly. It's so strong. You say nothing to people, and all of a sudden people are saying something has changed here. I say, yeah, we're about to go into sacred ground, and you could actually feel it. So there's a physiological effect as well as a psychic effect and a paranormal effect. So there's uh, definitely something something there. There's It's a doorway, a transition to another reality, and uh, it's very active. Hmm. Phil, well, i got to ask this. Um, we had Ted Phillips on about the Marley Woods case, which I'm sure you've heard and read about. Right. Uh, the balls of light that that you've seen at this general area, does the light that they generate light up surrounding trees, the ground, or anything like that, or are they strictly contained in and of themselves, no reflected light at all? No, they're not. Uh, they, they don't seem to reflect into the trees and onto the ground and so on. And sometimes the, the light is uh, very faint to the human eye, but in uh, certain types of film, it comes out very, very bright. Hmm. Um, so <clears throat> I think for, for, for most of the part, a lot of these globes of light, whatever they are, they're around us most of the time and we don't see them. Curious. Hmm. I, I, I don't know what to make of that. Ted, Ted related exactly the same thing because I was, I mean, he, he was saying that some of these lights come ridiculously close and I think one, one of them even interacted with someone's car at some point uh, and hit it. Uh, but, he, you know, I mentioned to him, I said, this has got to light up the fields, the ground, the trees, you know, what kind of reflected light are we, are we getting from these lights? And he said, oh, there's none at all. There is none. The only That's... effect that I, I, I've had reports of of people who uh, had the lights buzz right by them, they felt as if um, they were like ants crawling up and down their back and their arms. Huh. So you get an exposure to some type of microwave radiation that would do that. Hmm. What, what has been your, if you don't mind sharing with us, what's been your most uh, incredible experiences at these stone structures? You mentioned that you'd even had some experiences yourself uh, at those. Yeah, well, you know, I've been out there, and 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 there are times where I think these places – um, mark rifts in the space-time continuum or something. Now, I'm out there with, you know, one other person, and on one occasion, there was a Celtic flute being played, and the sound was coming from everywhere, and we couldn't determine where the sound was coming from. But we're deep in the woods, and it was loud, and no one was around, 
And wherever you tried to go, it seemed to be coming from everywhere. And then slowly, after about 20 minutes, it just faded out and disappeared. And the experience that I had out in Hawk Rock spending the night there, that was uh, also part of it, my experiences out there. And also, on uh, more than one occasion, um, going out to these areas, hearing strange sounds, which... um, was able to record and you know they sound a lot like a lot of these bigfoot type sightings or sounds that people have uh, image have uh, taped but um also um in these particular areas near the stone chambers you know i was out there with a team of researchers that we saw strange lights uh, that um dart around um in one particular place called reservoir road um one summer I was down there and looking for the mysterious spook light, and the darn thing appeared in for me, and I photographed it in ultraviolet film, and it's blazing in ultraviolet film. So, and uh, so, I have had you know sightings um, and experiences out in these locations myself, and that's usually very rare for a researcher. But if you go out there long enough, you know, so many times, and you're out there all the time, and these areas are very hot, sooner or later you're going to see something. Yeah, you're and going to cross paths. Something. It's just a matter of, you know, uh, the odds. Um, mm. But it seems that recently the more I go out there, the more strange phenomena that I see. For example, um, recently we were taping for some type of show that's going to be it's called Paranormal Television Network. I don't know what they're doing. Anyway, we're at Nina Mountain, which has a stone chamber. Nina Mountain has a lot of strange legends of UFO activity, ghosts, and things like that. I had some ex- interesting experiences there. But while we were taping, and remember, we're out in the, in the boondocks, in the wilderness, there were Native American Indian drums appeared playing. And the cameraman and everybody else is looking at everybody, where the heck is that coming from? <laughs> and the last time I heard those drums there was in 1992. But then we were there again in 2009, and the Native American drums appeared again. So this is the type of phenomena that uh, is quite common in these areas. And uh, it's filled with all kinds of uh, of unusual going going ons. And... And, you know, people who go out in that area, I think there's about a 50-50% chance that you're going to see something yeah. or photograph something. Well, let, me, let me ask you, uh, Have you, you must have asked the Native American peoples for their sort of lore about what these lights are. Uh, what do they say they are? They say they're uh, earth spirits. They're spirits who come from the other spirit world. And that um, in Nina Mountain in particular, they're called Spirits of the Mountain, the Guardians of the Mountain, because it was sacred ground during the 1700s for the Wappinger tribe up there. So they also have legends about who built the stone chambers. And um, so, you know, the legends, the sightings uh, of, of these lights and strange occurrences go back to Native American folklore. It was seen in colonial days, and it's being seen today. Each particular time period, where people are giving it a different particular name to identify it that's something suitable for the culture at the time. They're no longer spirits. They're being called UFOs. 
Mm-hmm. And now ghosts, because ghosts are hot because of the TV shows. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, I, I have no... Uh, I have no good guesses for for what the hell is going on up there. I mean, what uh, uh, I guess the only thing that I can relate to you that uh, coming out of that uh, that place when I did was uh, utter relief uh, at the time. Uh, I, one of the very last things that had happened up there was we had driven all day long up and down Searsville Road, and there was a parting of the trees. Uh, that led back to a, sh- a small meadow and a hill. All day long, we saw cows there. All day long, and uh, uh, milk cows, I guess. And um, at night, we drove back down that same road many times. And as we were coming back up towards the McDonald's, up towards the main drag again, uh, my research partner said, "Stop the car, uh, or stop the truck," and we stopped. And off to the right, he rolled down the window, and we just listened. We didn't hear anything. We didn't see anything. But the only thing that I can tell you is that there's a feeling of being watched, and then there's a feeling of being watched by a couple of hundred people. Uh, And that's what it felt like. It felt like there were throngs of people standing out there in this darkness that we couldn't make out that didn't want us around. Mm and that's when we pretty much left the area. I can tell you that uh, my research partner, and he was my research partner from uh, pretty much the time that I discovered uh, of what was going on with me, um, for many years we investigated a lot of different cases and went on a lot of different investigations on our own. And uh, he came over the house one day and said, I'm going up to Pine Bush, I'm going to camp out. And I don't know where he camped out, but I can tell you that when he came back, he was finished. Uh, We did no more investigations. In fact, we pretty much ceased having contact at that point. Uh, The only thing that he related to me was that he was asleep uh, in his tent, and he heard uh, a a, a tone, I believe, of some sort. And uh, there was a lot of light. And then he was subjected to a panoramic vision, just like you've mentioned here. You've talked about people having visions, quote-unquote, up there. He saw what he said were like TV screens, and they were 360 around his head. And there was, I said, what was on them? And he said, everything. Uh, He said, I'm done. I I got the answer I came for, and I'm finished with it now. I'm done. And he, true to his word, he has not um, done anything else with it. So uh, I, I think you, you, you can potentially have a life-changing experience up there because I've seen people do that. Um, but I, got, I, I have no good ideas for what that's, that's all, all about. Um, uh, I think you're probably the guy who is closest to what I feel is right, which is the whole um, – uh, you, you mentioned something about the, the time distortion or, or something like that. That certainly seems – that seems to set right in a lot of ways, uh, like mirages that people are seeing in time. Um, you know, I, but but then again, it, it ties in with what are these little people, and, um, I, and there's just so much going on up there. It's such a rich area for all sorts of things that I think the bottom line is we got to do a live show uh, from up there, if any of our equipment will work, provided. 
um, in that area. I'm not sure if you get that kind of disturbance in or around these stone structures, but I'd certainly oh, like do. to go. Again. People are always uh, amazed that all of a sudden their brand new batteries are dead. Yeah. Well, that wouldn't be too good for the show. Uh, so. <laughs> you have to have you have to have enough backup, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, let me just ask you this for my own peace of mind: if uh, if we would go up there to one of these stone structures, how quickly can we get the hell out of there? Depends on how fast you run. Oh, okay. <laughs> Good. Uh, I'm I got pretty long legs. Uh, so at any rate, I think that's that's it for me, Jer. Very good. Well, uh, Phil, thank you very much for doing this. And you're welcome. Uh, you know, thank you. It's so weird because you know, in about an hour and a half, it sounds like we really did a lot of show, but we actually have just sort of scratched the surface of your book, your work, and what else we could be going into. So we we must have you back on. Sure. Um, Please. And, um, yeah, and definitely I will be in touch with you. I'm sure a few people will get in touch with me about wanting to go to Hawk Rock or something. And uh, we'll try to work that out. So thank you very much for that as well. Okay, Jeremy. Okay, Jeff. Have a good night. You too. Take care. Bye. Hi, this is Ted Phillips, and you're listening to Paratopia. Hi, this is Bill Burns from UFO Magazine and UFO Hunters. You know, there are several ways that you can get UFO, UFO Magazine. Magazine. Yeah, we know, Bill. We know, we know, we know. Just shut up. Just give us one way. Don't tell us you're psychic and, you know, give it 8,000 phone numbers and take 15 minutes of our time where we just want to hear the show. Just tell us how we can get UFO Magazine in one way. Okay, okay. Just go to www.ufomag.com. Subscribe online. You happy? Yeah, was that so hard? Actually, harder than you know. In 1951, a young boy in rural Georgia was visited and abducted by a group of alien visitors from an unknown dimension. That contact continued over several decades and resulted in the birth of more than 60 hybrid children. In one of the most remarkable stories in all of UFO lore, Love in an Alien Purgatory is the startling pictorial account of David Huggins' hidden life, as revealed in his own vivid and sometimes disturbing paintings. With commentary and text by UFO investigator Ferry Urdozu, David's story takes the reader into a world between two dimensions, a purgatory of hope, sex, fear, and ultimately, love. I don't know what any of that means. All I know is that David Huggins is a friend of Culture of Contact. His artwork is quite striking. And it is now all found in this volume called Love in an Alien Purgatory, The Life and Fantastic Art of David Huggins, now available at, well, Amazon.com. I'm guessing a bookstore near you. Loving an alien beta, living it up as I'm going down. That's right, loving an alien beta. <laughs> oh, whatever. Loving an alien purgatory. The title's unfortunate. The artwork isn't. Pick yourself up a copy today. Eerie Radio, the endeavor for esoteric research and investigation into the enigmatic. Eerie Radio is a weekly podcast that features interviews with the world's leading paranormal researchers. Download episodes of Eerie Radio from your favorite podcatcher or directly from the show website at www.eerieradio.com. Eerie Radio. Listen. Learn. Laugh.
as I have. I played in California, there ain't too much I haven't seen. Three, two, one. So the Jeffrey. So the Jer. That Phil and Brogno, eh? There's so much wow. that I wanted to to get into, just in like specific cases, and you know he had investigated Gulf Breeze as well. I know that would have been great for you because you know that's your favorite. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. Uh, Except I couldn't keep my mouth shut. It just kept pouring out of me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry. No, that was great. Well, I mean, it wouldn't have made any sense because. I really wanted to do this story, you know, uh, and I didn't give it Smurf what you wanted to do. Oh, wait, no. <laughs> oh, thanks. Because essentially, you know, we didn't discuss beforehand what we were going to talk to him about, but I had been really ripping through his book here and um, and just knew sort of a storyline was unfolding that I really wanted to get to, which is the sort of the CIA that he kind of knows these people and has had contact and they don't really know what's going on as we think, but they do think about it in terms of interdimensional stuff more so than, you know, exopolitical space aliens. Um, and I, and I thought it was completely interesting that Alan Hynek of all pe- people who you, I think generally associate with, as, you know, as being the guy who, first came up with swamp gas as an excuse and then said, uh, oh, wait a minute, no, I was wrong. These UFOs represent something real and then thought it was aliens. Um, and I believe he even sort of argued with John Keel in his time, uh, but then ultimately at the end of his days actually admitted that he thought John Keel was uh, more right than wrong. Yeah, he said towards the end that it was all about windows. I mean, that was something that – that was what I took away from Hynek's work was that he he mentioned uh, windows and uh, windows of opportunity or windows of, you know, manifestations, that kind of thing. That's that's more or less what I take away from his work. And I thought Phil and Brogno just sort of knew about those stone chambers from living around there. I didn't realize he – that that was all part of the studying the Hudson Valley UFOs was you know finding that where where are they manifesting from these places what are the well these places have these stone chambers in them that's weird and all these chambers line up and they all line up um, at, with the central point being that balanced rock area that I've mm-hmm. uh, spoken about on other uh, shows either this one or Culture of Contact I don't remember um, so all of that to me is like revelation 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 like that's all a very good sort of storyline and. I think it would have been superfluous to uh, to do the other stuff for this episode. And then I had, um, you know, I remember that you had been up there, but I had forgotten just how involved your thing was. And I think um, seeing those military people jump out of the helicopter, I think that goes a hell of a long way to explaining why people stay in their houses and all of that. You know, even if it's a psychological, you know, almost like the, the you know, the neocon uh, color code system that came after 9-11. It's like orange alert, you know. I think that kind of stuff gets into your psyche along with living in a paranormal neighborhood. Mm. And, uh, yeah, you stay home, you keep the lights off and you don't talk to anybody. I think that's yeah, what black bars come into town. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, well, I mean, I have to say that my research partner at the time, uh, and, and I don't, I don't know how to say this in the clean. Well, let's, let's say it this way. He, he had a lot more gumption and guts than I did at the time. And when we, we're driving down the street. He says, that's a helicopter. That's a military helicopter. Pull over. And we pulled over, like, literally right next to this driveway. And when we pulled over, 
out come the, the, the repelling ropes and down come troops. I'm like, I, I think we should get the hell out of here. Mm-hmm. And he's like, get the camera, get the camera. And we put the camera on it for a little while. And I don't remember who I wrote back then, but I emailed someone who was who was somehow involved in that area. And I, I don't remember if it, it may have been Phil, I, although I doubt it. Uh, but I wrote someone about that, and they said, well, you may have one of the only pieces of footage that exists of military presence in that area. I think I actually wrote someone to ask, is there a reservation up there where they're doing maneuvers like that? Because this seemed to be on private land. Now, of course, you asked me where that tape is today. I have absolutely no clue. I would have to go through every VHS tape that I have to try and find it. But uh, uh, but, but my research partner was with me, and, and I've been trying to get in contact with him lately just to see if, by chance, I made him a dub. Uh, but... Uh, I'm telling you, it was the gambit. It was the weird feelings. It was the seeing a, a lemur on a fence post in Upper New York. It, we didn't see a UFO per se. We didn't see the massive triangular ships that are so often reported. But we did see strange lights, and we did see a ball of smoke beside the road that seemed to be the smoke seemed to be moving within it, just as if you might blow cigarette smoke into a uh, a soap bubble. You've seen people do that on yeah. the internet, doing tricks with that. It looked not too dissimilar from that. Um, I just wasn't stopping the truck. I wanted to get the hell out of there. So, very, very strange area. I mean, I liken that only to a place like Gulf Breeze and the level of strangeness that seems to surround the place. And on one hand, I look at it and I say, is it because I've read so much about it? Is it because I've watched so much about it on television? And you know, I, I didn't even realize we were in Pine Bush when Phil mentions talking about people having weird feelings going to certain places. I immediately knew we were in that area. I said, "Are we? We're in Pine Bush right now, aren't we?" He's like, "Yeah, yeah, that's where we're at right now." The sign was right back there. Hmm. Uh, you can tell, and and uh, I literally watched that town close down. I mean, the only thing that doesn't shut its doors is McDonald's. <laughs> can I get some fries with that? <laughs> that doesn't stop, but everything else, including... I aliens go in there, or whatever these things, the red-eyed creatures, if they ever just wander into a McDonald's, like order a Happy Meal or something. I want a Happy Meal. Oh, can I have the under three toy as well? Why can't I have a McGriddle? Right. It's past 11 a.m., sir. Right. McGriddle. <laughs> you know, oddly enough, McDonald's being the only thing that doesn't seem to close its doors, we actually talked to some of the girls working in McDonald's and got some interesting stories out of them about the stuff in the area. And, you know, they... Related, the one girl was relating in detail a story about the wells, which is why I brought it up to uh, to Phil about these wells and her uh, something about her boyfriend throwing a shoe down one of those, and supposedly from the town folklore, it was bad luck to mess with the wells or to throw anything down them. And uh, as I remember, something something horrible ended up happening to her boyfriend that she was going out with at the time, and she immediately attributed it to this well. But she also said that there were times where they'd all the kids basically would go out to the woods to drink <laughs> uh not like any uh, you know not l- unlike any suburban town in america 
and and parts of this are pretty suburbanite looking, uh, but it's surrounded by a vast amount of wilderness. But anyway, uh, they were all standing around this well one night when all of a sudden she said it felt like a instant 30 mile an hour hot wind erupted out of this well. Um, what what is that all about? I mean, what really is going on? Because there's all of these. There's the military thing. There's the 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 tribal spirits. There's lights. There's UFOs. There's balls of smoke. There's little people walking around in the woods. It's it's like it's got everything going on. It's all sorts of madness. So uh, it's definitely a weird place. I mean, if we do a show from up there. You know, expect me to uh, be a little antsy. Where it depends. Sure. Yeah, where it depends. <laughs> Definitely. I encourage all listeners who attend, where it depends. Uh, well, we should probably leave it there because we are once again uh, a ridiculously long and interesting show. Um, <laughs> but I got to say, Man Alive, we have some, <laughs> some incredible guests. They just oh, keep well, coming at us. I mean, pretty much everyone we ever wanted to have on the show. We're going to have on the show uh, pretty much September and October, and then we're done with the show, right? Isn't that it? Isn't that how that works? <laughs> Maybe you are. Oh, uh, <laughs> then we've, we've no, completely peaked. I'm enjoying this way too much. I, I mean, I don't think that that's going to be a peak point. I think that, uh, and I'm not giving any allusions to, to who's coming on soon, but I think no. people are going to be really shocked yep. uh, and surprised and happy, too at what's coming up and uh, God, I can't wait. I cannot wait uh, for any of these, but uh, no, I don't think we're done after that because I think, <clears throat> I think once we get through this, this next throng of people, I think it's time to have a serious round table with some of our listeners. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, we should all kind of step back and take stock of, of exactly what's, what's happened with the show and uh, who we've had on and, and I know that we've got some listeners that would like to be a part of that. So I think within the next couple of episodes, maybe we'll put a post up for people to write in and, you know, and volunteer for that. Guys, you know, we, we do this for you. We, we do it for us, but we do it for you, too. So you guys who want to come on and talk with us about everybody that we've had on and address or pose any questions, we'd love to do that at some point in the not too distant future. What's coming up is going to be the Mark Nesbitt live at Gettysburg show, which will be taped <laughs> live, <laughs> live pre-recorded on tape. <laughs> right. But it will be somewhat interactive because much like we do, uh, uh, from my home every night, <laughs> we'll be running a live camera. If we can get on the net there, I'm not sure we can, but if we can, I'd very much like to have a live cam going uh, that people can kind of peek in. But I have to write Mark about what day is good, and then we have to work our schedules, Jeremy and I, to be able to go. You know what's but, uh, is how much hmm. free we give to the people. <laughs> I mean, come on. None of these other shows give you the free. <laughs> Donate to Paratopia at our www.paratopia.net. I mean, hell, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> but I'm not even saying that. I'm just saying, man, yeah, we're, we're, we're cool. I almost wish I were a listener of the show because I'd be like, wow, this is great. They keep doing new <laughs> new things and not charging money for them. That's crazy. This is the sound of Jeremy pat himself on the back. Yeah, it's, it's all I've got is me at this point <laughs> in, in, uh, since we don't make money. All right. So. Um, 
So the, the Gettysburg thing, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, actually. And we're going to have an opportunity for the listeners to go through all of the raw data, which we're going to put up at a spot that they can download it themselves and see what they can pick through and find. Um, oh, wait a second. Getting back to the money thing. Somebody did donate money. Is that somebody that we should be thanking on the air? Or uh, was that an yes. anonymous thing? It was not anonymous. Allow me to open my Gmail and, uh, and find out who... A couple of weeks ago. Somebody actually unsolicited sent us money. Yeah, we got a, uh, a, a actually an unsolicited donation. And I'm just, I don't want to say his whole name, but Ivan, you know who you are. <laughs> Ivan deserves a special thank you for sending us uh, some money to keep the show going. And, uh, and Ivan paid for this month of broadcasting. So thanks, Ivan, for your help. And that was a humbling experience <laughs> looking into my email and seeing that Ivan had donated some money to help the show. And, and that's really great. Uh, I think we're doing okay. I guess at some point we'll, we'll um, have t-shirts or something like that. I've been working on that because I hate asking for donations. I'd rather be able to give something back for, for, for funds that we get, but uh, yeah, we're doing okay. I mean, we don't have a huge uh, archive. Uh, we archived another two shows this past week, which, uh, I have to give it to Jeremy to put up on the uh, Culture Contact archive uh, for Paratopia so that anybody who wants to familiarize themselves with episodes one through whatever we're at right now uh, can do that uh, because those are rapidly, their first episodes are rapidly dropping off of iTunes. But here's a new thing. we got a new chat room, which you can find on our homepage now in the Pages section rather than the Links section. And the number two bit of news is that we are going to be moving the website, which will now contain the message board, the podcast, which you can listen to live or you can subscribe just like you do right now. And we're also going to have uh, host blogs, which we're trying to toss around. Do we want to do video blogs or do we want to do written blogs or do we want to do both? So we might have an ability to just to do whatever we want with this site, but it'll be a whole new site. Lots of features uh, and the chat room, and I don't know that we're going to do that much with the chat room, except we are trying to make this show so that we can broadcast it live uh, on the net as we record it, and that way you, the audience, can be chiming in on the message board with questions that you'd like to hear asked of our guests, so you can kind of be actively involved. At that point, bingo, bango, there's your way to interact. So we're working on all these things that hopefully will be done within the next month, I'm hoping. Uh, so uh, that's the changes coming up. Other than that, I got nothing. See you next week. One last time, we'd like to thank Phil Imbrogno. Please, please, please go find his book at a bookstore near you, Interdimensional Universe. It's fantastic. It is worth your time, your money, and your eyesight. <laughs> <laughs>